Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. An angel comes to Joseph, says, don't be afraid, don't resist this, be part of this, this is God's doing, Mary's not lying, you can trust God. Luke says, now, this point in the story, they are now pledged to be married. They are now engaged, but have not get, yet get married, a.k.a. they have not consummated her marriage. In other words, her virginity is being preserved even up to birth. Because if there's any question about that at all, then we could enter some doubt into the possibility that this really was a miraculous conception and a virgin. So Luke's careful to preserve that detail. And the virgin birth was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14. So we can check off the second box. There's a third primary prophecy though. And that was that the baby would be born in where? What geographical location? Bethlehem. This is a problem. Joseph and Mary don't live in Bethlehem. Where do they live? Nazareth. You do understand this, right? Jesus did not grow up in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth. Mary is pregnant. And at the time of her pregnancy, we have absolutely no indication that Joseph and Mary, for any reason, are planning a trip together as an unmarried couple to Bethlehem. They didn't have the money. They didn't have a reason to go. Joseph and Mary have checked off two of the boxes, but God's perfect plan calls for the baby to be born not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. How does God get the third box to be checked off? A census. Interesting. Because I'd suggest to you that what if we just wiped out the first three verses of chapter 2? All this mumbo-jumbo about names and people who really don't belong in this story at all. What if we just skipped over the part about Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed while Quirinius is the governor of Syria? If we just start the story at verse 4, Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Bethlehem, we still get all the details of the story, right? We check off the box. He gets to Bethlehem. The baby's born there. Why does Luke choose to graft in historical figures that seem to have nothing to do with the narrative of Jesus' birth that really we could probably cut out from the story and still get all the details we need. What is he trying to show us? And what is God trying to show us when he impressed upon Luke to keep Caesar Augustus's part in the story? That to me is something that I saw new this time and something I want to draw out just for a moment today. The simplest answer as to why Luke would include these historic figures is to add some historic credibility to the timing of this narrative because we know we can trace back historically and find out when Caesar Augustus reigned, when Tiberius was the governor of Syria, and we can use those things to triangulate upon the date that the Bible says and show how that the Bible and history work alongside and that the Bible is historically credible. And that's powerful, and I think that's absolutely a purpose. But I think that there might be something additional to that that God's trying to show us. And it has to do with the answer to this question. How did God get 
Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus from Nazareth to Bethlehem in time for the baby to be born there, thus fulfilling the third major prophecy about Jesus. How did this happen? I will tell you the answer will probably bother you. If I explain it correctly, it should bother us to a degree. It should create a lot of tension in our heart. But that tension should reveal to us a beautiful confidence that we can have in the goodness and the greatness of the character of God. Now to do this, I have to nerd out a little bit on history, okay? Um, We need to turn the clock back because the world that Jesus entered is very different from the world that you and I live in today. The world he was born into, very different than Baltimore County 2019. Let's turn the clock back from Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem. Let's turn it back about 50 years before this story takes place. And let's talk about a man you might have heard of named Julius Caesar. How many of you have heard of him or eaten his salads? All right. Julius Caesar was the ruler of the Roman Republic. And uh, if you remember back to history class, 44 B.C. was not a good year for Julius Caesar. I don't know if you remember this or not, well, not from living through it, but from your studies. Um, Julius Caesar was publicly murdered by, uh, in front of his entire council by a group of the senators, right? Do you remember this story? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you too, right? Um, so he's publicly murdered by, and it's led by two conspirators. Uh, you get, do you know who the names of the two conspirators were? Marcus Brutus, and who was the other one? Cassius, okay? Marcus Brutus and Cassius. There's a reason why I'm sharing this with you. I would not waste your Jesus time on random history, okay? But there's a reason we have to see what's going on. Because keep in mind, who's in charge of the Jewish people at the time that Jesus comes into the world? The Romans are. Okay? So it's important for us to know the government. Jesus was born into two governments. You had the Roman Empire at the time that Jesus was born. They were in charge of the whole area. But the Romans also let a puppet government exist of Jewish leaders. And so Jesus was born into a time when there were two governments, two rulers, two sets of taxes, and the Jewish people were doubly oppressed. He was born into a time of foreign occupation in the land that he and his dad intended to give to their people. So you need to understand who's in charge and what God thought about who was in charge. We have to go back to Julius Caesar. He's murdered. And when a leader gets murdered, you have to have someone who comes up after him. So he's got, he's got Brutus and Cassius who lead this charge against him. He's murdered. And after he's murdered, they read his will. And in his will, Julius Caesar names his successor. A 20-year-old, sickly wisp of a kid with a big mop of hair that used to hang down in his eyes and he would habitually brush it to the side by the name of Octavian, or Octavius for short. He is not the picture of a powerful leader. He's 20 years old, he's pompous, he's got a big nose, he has a weak chin, but what he lacks in appearance, he makes up for with cunning and aggression and heavy-handed leadership. The first thing that he does is raise taxes, 
generates more income for the republic. Second thing he does is misappropriate large sums of public money to float into his personal coffers. And the third thing that he did was he named all of what they called the liberators, Brutus, Cassius, and all the other senators who rose up against, who rose up against his uncle. He named them enemies of the state. They seized all of their property, and they forced all these people to flee from Rome. And over the next two years, Brutus and Cassius built up an army of people loyal to their cause, whose goal was to come back and take out Octavius and then take over the Republic and run it the way they wanted to do. Well, Octavius, in the meantime, raised up his own army, and he got himself a sidekick who was much better in battle. A very heavy-drinking famous statesman and also a pedophile, a man by the name of Mark Antony. And so the tag team of Mark Antony and Octavius for two years are chasing down and trying to weaken these liberators. And in 42 BC, it all comes to a climax at a very historically pivotal event called the Battle of Philippi. And at this battle, at the end of this battle, the historians have written a lot about it, and it is gory too, I wouldn't even really feel comfortable sharing all of it from the pulpit. pulpit. But there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dead and or dying bodies littered across the batting field and they're beginning to be picked clean by birds of prey and by just random people trying to take anything off of these dead and dying men. And at the end of the battle, as the dust settles, Octavius and Mark Antony were the clear victors. But there was a big problem. There were two winners but they only needed one leader to take over the Roman Republic. And so what happened is these two buddies became enemies. Now Octavius and Anthony spent another 11 years building their own armies and fighting for control of the Roman Empire. Well, finally, in I think 32 BC, it comes to an end. Mark Antony has a general who deserts him and takes battle plans over to the other side and gives them to Octavius. Octavius uses those battle plans first to wipe out Mark Antony's entire navy. And after he wipes out the navy, Mark Antony's generals and troops are so discouraged that they all desert him. And now Mark Antony flees for his life to Egypt, where he hooks back up with his former lover, on again, off again, Cleopatra. Some of these names at least sounding familiar. And how do they have anything to do with Jesus? You'll see in a second. Octavius finds out about this and starts heading down to Egypt. He's going to finish He's going to finish the deal. Mark Antony, you know, as, as the story goes, falls on his sword and takes his own life and Cleopatra right thereafter and thus ends one of the most famous love affairs in all of history. Well, now Octavius has a clear path to putting himself in charge of the Roman Republic. There's just one problem. He's eliminated Mark Antony. He recognizes that there's also an illegitimate stepson running around that Julius had out of wedlock with... Cleopatra, it's all crazy. And so he issues word that this 16-year-old boy needs to be wiped out. And there's a long story with that, but eventually it's successful. He's now eliminated the entire bloodline of Julius Caesar. Caesar. He's eliminated his opponent, and he seizes power, but he makes one huge, he makes a couple huge changes. Number one, he does away with the Roman Republic and establishes the Roman Empire controlled by one man. He gives himself a nickname, Devius Philippus, which means son of God. 
He calls himself the Son of God, and he changes his name from Octavius to Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, who we read in Luke chapter 2. Who under his leadership, he reigned for his entire life. Okay? At the time of, you know, if you, if you do the math, if he was 20 years old in 44 BC, he's probably 65, 66 at this time in the story. And historians tell us with every year of his life, he grew more and more cruel, more and more power hungry, more and more devious. He misappropriated. He was a thief. He was an embezzler. He was a murderer. And it was his decision of his own evil free will to probably make the only law or rule that could get Joseph and Mary and the true son of God from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Do you see how odd this is? It looks like God is using a deplorable, despicable, sordid Roman dictator. Choices to fulfill biblical prophecy. Why did I go through that whole backstory? Because I need to show you something in this text. I, I had so much more to say and I missed it. It's okay. You can read it and think about it later. Point number one. I really labored over this, but this is what I see. God is able to use things he does not approve of to accomplish the purposes he designs. God is able to use things he does not approve of to accomplish purposes that he designs. I don't know if this is good news or troubling news. I don't know if this resolves issues in your heart or if it creates tension. And I have to be super careful with how I explain this and how I choose my words here. Because if you replace some of these words with similar words, we could end up thinking incorrectly or inaccurately about God. There's a few things we don't know in this passage that we can just speculate about. I don't want to spend a lot of time on speculation. We truly don't know at what specific point in Mary's pregnancy Joseph and Mary left Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. If she was with Elizabeth for what, three months, Pastor James? And the baby was born, if a baby was born at full term nine months, somewhere between the third month of her pregnancy and the ninth month of her pregnancy, this journey happens. So somewhere in that six-month window. We don't know exactly when. Okay. We also don't know why Joseph decided to bring Mary with him. He was under no obligation to do so. She didn't have to go. He did. He was of the direct line of David, and he had to go to the hometown, and he didn't, listen, by all accounts, they didn't even have money to put a, a decent roof over their head. They certainly didn't have money to finance a trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but they knew the Roman dictator, the Roman emperor commanded for a census, and the only reason they took a census is to get ready to take more money from them. And the Jews already paid 23.3% tax to their own government and temple every year, and on top of that, they had to pay a tax to the Romans. They were, they were in deep, 
deep financial, uh, financial uh, uh, subjugation here. He didn't have money to make this trip, but he also couldn't disobey that law. I can't think of any, there's probably some other ones, but what other scenario would get Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem than some power-hungry, evil emperor trying to squeeze another few, you know, whatever, another few Roman coins out of this poor family in Nazareth out of fear for his life if he doesn't go? So we don't know why he took Mary. One commentator that I read said maybe it was Joseph simply trying to get her out of a very socially uncomfortable environment for the last few months of her pregnancy. Like, Mary, I can't leave you here without me to have to deal with all the whispers and everything else. I know you'd probably be more comfortable here, but why don't you come along with me? We don't know. It's only speculation. All I know is this. What got them to move was a, dis- was a decision that I don't think God approves of. I don't think that I don't think it was God. If you read the Old Testament, I don't think God's deepest desire was to have Caesar Augustus calling the shots over the land and the people that God loved. But what we see here is that he wasn't he was calling the shots, but God was able to use the shots that he called to accomplish his will. Because here's the thing, if God is limited to only using people he completely approves of, show me one administration in all of history where God approved of everything about the leader, the council, the government in totality. What happens is if we say God can't use things he doesn't approve of, he can't use it. What you say is that everything that God can't approve of has power over God. Are you following me? Caesar Augustus could have effectively, by his own sinfulness, blocked the Messiah's entrance into the world. So I can't totally unwind all this. I'm not saying it brings God great joy or that God manufactures evil and sin because that's one of the ways he likes to bring his good into the world through evil that he creates or inspires. That's not what I'm saying at all. There is not any evil in God. None. He is altogether lovely, altogether holy, altogether wonderful. But he is somehow big enough and great enough and mighty enough and creative enough, even when evil people make decisions, he's able somehow to extract good out of even horrible things that people say and do. And here is a man in Caesar Augustus who does not love God, who does not serve God, who does not live a moral life, who does, calls him, he calls himself the Son of God, and the grand irony is that his own arrogance leads to the Son of God coming into the world exactly at the right place, the right time that God meant it to be. So who really is the power figure here? It's God. It gives me, in some sense, great comfort to know that God is not held hostage by evil people with bad intentions. That God is not having his hands tied even in our most dire circumstances. If you trace through the Bible, you will see from the beginning to the end a thread of people whose lives were deeply affected by unfair, unjust, 
horrible circumstances. Not even by their own doing. And how God somehow, some way, that I don't know that I could ever answer to our satisfaction, was able to extract his purposes and his design, even in spite of those things. I'll give you three real quick. I'll start with Jay. Joseph, Job, Jesus. Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, talk about a man named Joseph, who if you study his story very carefully, it parallels Jesus' life very, very, very closely, actually. You heard the story of Joseph, guy with many colors, coat? Have you seen the musical? Have you any of this? Okay. Just checking and send you back to preschool and back here we'll learn, teach you the story. Um, yeah, Joseph was a kid with dreams, wasn't he? Good dreams, God-given dreams. Do you remember? Joseph, they called him the crazy dreamer. He had these dreams that he maybe made the not wise decision to share with his brothers. He has a bunch of brothers. He was his dad's favorite. Their whole family had some dysfunction that passed down generationally, which is a whole different message in itself. But his, his dad made Joseph the clear favorite and it made his brothers jealous. Joseph has these dreams that all his brothers come and bow down to him one day, and he goes and tells his brothers this. Not a good idea. That's just pressing the buttons, man. And they do him dirty, don't they? They sell. First of all, Joseph is betrayed by the people closest to him. Jesus was betrayed by people closest to him. He sold into slavery in the amount of money the shekels tie in with you. There's a whole lot of, I won't nerd out on that this morning. I'd like to, but I won't. He sold into slavery for having a dream that he shared with his brothers that God gave him. But he doesn't get bitter. He works hard. He keeps his chin up. He lives honorably. And he starts getting some more responsibility. He starts to make something of himself. And then he's falsely accused of sexual assault. He's completely innocent. But because the person manipulated him, he gets thrown into prison in Egypt. And he could have gotten bitter. But he stayed close to God and he trusted him. And God kept speaking to him and God kept using the gifts in his life. And he was faithful to use those gifts. And through this amazing turn of events, he ends up sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh and is the number two in the entire nation. All of his brothers come back, they don't recognize him, they do literally bow down before him, and this prophecy that God has over his life is fulfilled. But how does he get Joseph to Egypt to fulfill the prophecy if he doesn't? A lot of things happen to Joseph that God didn't approve of. But God was able to use Joseph's life and even use the enemies in Joseph's lives as instruments through which he painted the picture of his perfect plan. So much so that Joseph, God used Joseph to run a good food storage operation to preserve these people through years of famine, and he actually was able to redeem the relationship with his brothers. What about Job? We won't go deep into that. Job is a book that, you know, be careful what day you go to it, okay? Um, Job had it. Job was someone who, who God loved and who, who, who God loves us all. But Job loved God deeply. The enemy desired to really have his way with Job. God allowed it. I know that's, even that statement is hard for us to hear. But we don't get too deep into Job chapter 1. We get into verse 20 after he's 
had thieves come through and take things and stuff has been destroyed and things are burned down. Job says this. It says, Job tore his mantle. He shaved his head. This is where he and I bond. And he fell down upon the ground and he worshiped. Are you able to worship when the walls fall in? Are you able to worship when the people close to you betray you? Are you able to worship when you've been sold out? When you've suffered financial loss, relational loss, when you've been let down by your leaders? Is your response in those moments to fall down and to worship? This is his response. He says, naked I came out from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. What's this next phrase? Blessed be the name of the Lord. My God. Wow. He wasn't prepared for this. But here's a man through no, what was his fault? He loved God so much and intimidated Satan. (laughs) Because of that. This happens. And yet he clings to God. And what he shows us is he can trust the temperature of God's character even more than the temperature of his circumstances. He's saying, yes, things are bad. He calls a spade a spade. He says, he didn't say the thieves have taken away. He says the Lord took it away. Blessed be his name. Because I still have him. This is just stuff. And it hurts. And I'm mourning. He shaves his head. He's mourning. And he's worshiping. And how many of us throughout history have held on to this man's story in times of difficulty? And how do you, you and I even get to a place of having access to this kind of strength if God was not able to use things he didn't approve of, he didn't, didn't bring him joy, but he was able to extract his purpose and his design. What about Jesus? Here's a man who just came to love people and the people just didn't ultimately love him. He's betrayed by people close to him. He's falsely accused. He goes through a sham of a trial. He's publicly beaten that the charges are changed. We've, we've walked through this all before. He's, he's hung naked on a cross to die. And even in that moment, Jesus recognizes if these evil people don't do the things my Father approves of, if, they, if these evil people don't carry on unholy actions, I can't accomplish God's purpose for my life. If these people won't do things that God cannot approve of. If they refuse, I can't die. I can't die this way. Jesus, even in his death, recognized they did not understand what they were doing. Because what they were doing, God did not approve of. But Jesus understood they had to do what God didn't approve of in order for him to bring salvation to you and to me. I know that's a tough... Trust me, I'm wrestling with this. Because on the, I don't want to use this point to excuse bad behavior. So let's not do that this morning. But how can we apply this to our lives? We can, we can learn to see our enemies 
as instruments of God. Not to excuse their behavior, but to say, God, even in my suffering, I trust that you can extract something redeemable out of this. I'll say this. I wasn't going to say this. I feel impressed to say this. God puts people in your lives for two reasons. One, sometimes he puts people in your lives to show you how to be. And other times he puts people in your lives to show you how never to be. And both of those things are valuable. And you can salvage some good out of even the most toxic of relationships. It doesn't mean that the whole thing will taste sweet in your mouth. But God is able to extract something good even out of those types of things. Another thing we can do, like Job, we can learn to trust the character of God above the temperature of our circumstances. And like Jesus, when the rubber meets the road, we can simply submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus to extract some type of purpose from our suffering. So the first thing I see in those six verses is that God is able to, He's able to use things he doesn't approve of. How or why? Really for one reason, there's only really one reason for him to do that, is to make sure that his purpose moves forward. To make sure that his purpose moves forward. Completely shifting gears, and I'll wrap with this because this one's much easier. This is the one that I think most of us probably have seen. And I see this in verses 7 and 8 where we get the details. She, ra- she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, Laid him in a manger because there's no room in the inn. I won't unpack all of those phrases. I've done that before. I just want to give you one perspective. Because the world Jesus entered didn't see this the same way that you know, Charles Schultz does. Or some of the other depictions Christmas pageants show. Second point, sadly we often miss God because we fail to recognize the divine displayed in the ordinary. Christmas wasn't all about angel choirs and stars. Christmas was also about an unmarried couple down on their luck, putting a baby, think about this, putting a baby into one of the most unsanitary environments you would ever consider putting a human being. Seriously. Yeah. Excrement, feeding trough, Animals nipping around. It is not a, this scene, we have really cleaned this scene up. And we put it in our house and it lights up and you can buy it from Hallmark. We can, all these types, we have several, trust me. We have like 13 baby Jesuses all over the house. From little people on up to the ones that the boys are allowed to look at but not touch, right? Nothing wrong with that. But understand, that's not really what it looked like. Can you imagine how many people, Jewish people, God-fearing people, might have been thinking, might have even prayed this day, God be near to me. God come close to me. I look for you. And they walk down the street past a couple down on their luck with a baby in a feeding trough and don't even pay it any mind because nothing about this scene looked supernatural 2,000 years ago. There were no angels in there. There was no floodlight. There was no choir singing harmony with an orchestra. There was none of it. The baby was not swaddled in clothes from Eddie Bauer or L.L. Bean. He was not placed into an environment with attendants around him that had been completely made sanitary. He is, this is not about coziness and comfort and warmth. It is about danger and excrement and adventure. That's what this is. And nobody recognized it. Nobody. If they knew, 
If these Jews knew that was the Messiah and this was divine, trust me, they were watching for it. They would have clamored around them and made sure he was taken care of. They did not see it. And how many times do you and I want angels and audible voices and stars from the sky for God to reveal himself for us when all around us every day he's revealing himself to us through the common and the ordinary? We want God to be majestic, and he is. We want him to move the stars to tell us whether we should buy the car or wait another six months. We want him to send an audible voice to us, you know, whether we should have another child or wait. We want him to show Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright by just putting a spotlight right on them and having them raise up out of the crowd with the choir singing. And I guess occasionally God does this, but it, and in the Christmas story you have some of that, but very few people got angels. Some people just got shepherds. Very few people got choirs. Most of what God was doing in trying to reveal himself to people came through the common and the ordinary. You may want a booming voice from heaven and God says, I've given you a Bible. And if you pour over it for the rest of your life, I will speak to you. Through the words typed on the page, I will speak to you. But you say, but no, I want a voice from heaven that's clear. And God says, but there is something that I've given you. God, I want an angel. And he sends your, your cousin Melvin. I'm like, I don't want to, I, I, I he's the one, I, I don't want him to come to Christmas. I don't want to come to Thanksgiving. I don't want to sit next to him at the table. I just, he's, and God uses cousin Melvin somehow to speak. And you say, I don't want that. I don't want you to speak to me that way. I want a voice from heaven with James Earl Jones's voice. That's what I want. Sometimes you want an answer and God sends you a problem. What does Jesus show us at Christmas? He was willing to leave warmth, comfort, the peace of heaven, and enter world as a help. He could have even come. He could have come as a big, strong general. He comes as a breakable, fragile baby who's not even saying goo goo gaga yet, who needs to be completely dependent. Did you get this? The baby didn't change his own diapers. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but understand what form he was willing to come in. To us. He was willing to leave what he had and be placed into probably the worst petri dish you could imagine that you would put an infant in. Wrapped in saliva and excrement and leftovers. To say this is really what the journey is. Yeah, it's adventure, but it's danger. It's not always guarantees. It's not always angels and choirs. And the real heart of a Christian at Christmas says, I want to live that kind of life. Jesus, if you were willing to leave behind everything that made you comfortable and cozy, not that those things are bad, but, you were, but when your dad gave you an assignment that had a little danger in it, that was uncomfortable, that was dirty, he said yes to that adventure. What would you do for Jesus if you could say the same yes to those kinds of adventures? Maybe God's speaking to you today about some things in your life that need to be reprioritized and reoriented. 
Maybe he's been trying to speak to you through the common and the ordinary and you're just blowing it off because you want something more divine and big. Well, maybe this is your moment. Maybe me saying this this morning is connecting dots to you today to say, you know what? I need to say yes to some things. Maybe you've been hung up in some things in your life because you're saying, how can God extract anything good out of all this garbage that's happened to me? Those things are also part of this Christmas story and this Christmas narrative. And I hope that God's able to minister to your heart this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. Let me pray over you today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, do you need, do you need to have a relationship with Jesus today? Would you like that? Look at everything Jesus was willing to do to draw near to you. Maybe you'd like to draw near to him today. Maybe you want to be complete like what we talked about earlier on. Maybe you recognize there's an incompleteness about you. Maybe you even recognize right now, you recognize that there are some things that are wrong in your life. We call it sin, disobeying God, living as if we know better than he does. And the Bible teaches us that our conscience and our heart and our spirit gets uneasy in those moments. We feel dirty. We feel bad about ourselves. We feel regret. We feel guilt. There's all different kinds of ways we cope with it, but none of them, none of them compare to what Jesus does when he covers and he forgives and he cleanses as only he can because he's the only one who's already taken all of the penalty for your sin. So I want to invite you, if you'd like to begin a relationship with Jesus today, or maybe you've strayed from him, and you want to hit that reset button, surrender your life fresh and new to him today. I'm going to lead you in a prayer that talks about admitting, believing, and choosing. Admitting that we're sinners, believing that Jesus is who he says that he is, believing in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and choosing his leadership in our life. Let me pray for you this morning. If you'd like to begin a relationship with Jesus, My voice lasted just exactly long enough. If you'd like to begin a relationship with Jesus today, I want to invite you to just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe in you. I believe you lived a sinless life. I believe you died on the cross as my substitute in my place to pay my penalty. I believe God has accepted that payment through you for me. And I believe you rose from the dead. I accept forgiveness for my sins. Please clean me up. I welcome you into my life. And I choose you as my Lord and my ultimate leader. I'm going to live your way, not my way. In your precious name I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with Him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.